About a month ago, the LDS Church announced that they had made sweeping changes to the temple ordinances, and specifically the endowment. With that in mind, I thought now would be a good time to have a conversation about the temple. As I thought about how to do this without revealing too much, I got a little nervous. Well, lucky for me, I know a temple president. On this episode, I have on Dan Hatch. Dan is the temple president for the Righteous Branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a temple where the original ordinances are still practiced to this day. So Dan is uniquely qualified to talk about the temple changes. We cover why the ordinances shouldn't change, what covenants we make in the temple and what they mean, and even get into certain covenants that used to be made in the LDS temple that are no longer given. That and more on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I want to take just a few moments here and just say thank you for listening. I can never tell you how much it means to me that you spend your time here with me. Now, on top of that, last year I received donations that helped me upgrade the audio, equipment, and software. This year I want to do the same thing for video. Now, if you want to help out and make a donation, you can do that by going to mormonrenegade.com and making a donation there. Also, check out the Mormon Renegade Supply Store at mormonrenegade.com and pick up some merch. Now, if you can't do any of those, I completely understand. It's not like it's been a banner year necessarily for our finances. So maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers. Finally, as I've started to do more video, there's a YouTube channel up for the podcast. But uh, just between you and me, yeah, I ain't going to be there very long because I have a feeling I'm going to get kicked off. So to stay one step ahead of that, I've made a channel on Rumble. So head on over to Rumble, look up the Mormon Renegade podcast channel there, and crush that like and subscribe button. Thank you. I have been very careful on this podcast to only advertise for items that I feel will add value and purpose in your life. That said, I've discovered a book that I really believe should be in every Mormon's library. The book is called Beneath Sheep's Clothing. In this book, the author, Julie Beeling, breaks down the communist infiltration into our schools, institutions, and perhaps even most distressing, our churches. The book backs up its claims with well-cited sources, so you can go do the research yourself. This book will allow you to see the communist tactics and gives you the tools on how to combat this insidious movement in America. Julie is right now trying to raise money to make the book into a documentary, and I can't recommend donating to this cause strongly enough. So head over to mormonrenegade.com and you can find the link to buy the book and donate to the documentary in this episode page or scroll down to the very bottom of the landing page at mormonrenegade.com to find a link to buy the book. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Well, I'm doing a first that I've never done before. I am actually on location for a podcast. Up to this point, it's either been Zoom or my place. So today I'm coming from you, to you from the vaults of Christ Church, the branch. I'm just kidding. It's just a library. But... uh I, I thought it sounded cool. I'm uh, I'm here with Dan Hatch. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Good. How's life been treating you? Well, life is what life is, and it's good and bad, and all of it I take as best I can. Awesome. So I'm 
one, thanks for talking with me about this, because this is something that I have had multiple people reach out to me in about the last month. And that is temples, right? More specifically, the endowment. Now, we're just about a month removed from the LDS Church just making sweeping changes to the endowment. And that's on top of a 100 years worth of changes that we've had thus far. So, you talking to me about this is huge, because this is going to answer a lot of people's questions about what used to be there, what's not there now within the LDS endowment, and then also why, and, and I want to start here, why is it important? that those ordinances should have never have changed. Why is it important that the ordinance never change? Well, I believe in one place, uh, Joseph Smith pointed it out, and he said, and the principles of the gospel never change. Ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men are not to be altered or changed. All must be saved on the same principles. Well, if we're going to be saved on the same principles, then what my ancestors did in the temple should be the same things that we're doing in the temple, not anything different. And if they change the wording so much and they change the actual covenants or change the process, is it really the same ordinances at all? And if not, then what are we doing? Yeah, I, <clears throat> when I first discovered all the temple changes, when I was first coming into fundamentalism, gosh, it got to be 12, 15 years ago now. The thing I remember most is just how different it seemed, right, from what was original, right? You hear about the, the original, quote, uncut version of the endowment, and it's a six-hour day, right? Yeah. It's not you know, pulling up, jumping out, changing into your whites, and you're done in an hour and a half or two hours. This was an all-day thing. And one of the things that got me is that they continued to pare it down. I was like, okay, so in doing this, we're not showing a lot of respect for what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to save our ancestors, right? We're trying to stand on Mount Zion as saviors. And if we can't devote the better part of an afternoon or an evening to that, I mean, what's going on? Um, the other thing I'll say is that Joseph Smith also said, where there's no change in ordinances, there's no change in priesthood. Correct. And by changing it, and, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, in changing the endowment, you're basically turning God into a respecter of persons, right? Absolutely. I uh, I remember when <clears throat> when I left the LDS Church, I had to have kind of an exit interview. I just shouldn't say I had to. I had the opportunity to because I could have told them to go, you know, pound sand, sand. or whatever. But I was like, you know, we'll we'll go and we'll we'll have a chat. And this gentleman I talked to, he wasn't the stake president, but he was a member of the stake presidency. I think first counselor, and he was actually one of the higher-ups in Bonneville Communication. So he had um, he, he had audience with the top 15 pretty frequently. And he had told me, because I asked him, I was like, this is a big one for me. Changing this ordinance is huge. And he said, well, 
here's the thing. For the first time ever in the LDS church, we have more single people than married people. And I was like, and? And he's like, well, some of those covenants just don't really seem to fit with that. And I said, so have we thought about maybe asking the question, why aren't people getting married? <laughs> like, that would be the first thing, right? We don't change the endowment because no one can live the law of chastity, right? If you can't stop screwing around on your wife, you don't come in, right? But yet we're re ready to make all these concessions. And, and it, it made me stop and think. If the covenants I took are different than the covenants my daughter took, are we going to end up in the same place? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? It sure does, it, and it's spooky. So, <clears throat> I, I think that pretty well answers that question on why it is those can't change. I remember the first day I went to the temple, and this was in the Los Angeles temple in 1975. Um, it was prior to going on my LDS mission. and. The temple president there, he came into the room to talk to a few people. And this was prior to going through and getting our washings and anointings and endowments. And he looked at me and he said, Dan, one thing I want you to remember is when you go to the temple, you should be trying to learn something new every time you attend the temple. And I took that to heart. And for the longest time, I was really working hard at trying to memorize or learn something new and important. And then shortly after a certain amount of time, I noticed changes, changes that were in the temple endowment, things that were being taken away. And it kind of bothered me a little because I'm thinking, how can we learn something new every day if they keep taking things away from it? And what importance did the things they used to do that they're not doing now meant to anybody? And obviously it meant something to God, especially if it was revealed to Joseph Smith, and he's the head of this dispensation for us, and whose right is it to change it? Right. Especially after, after Joseph was adamant. Do not change these things. These things were revealed from God and are not to be changed. The closest thing, and, and I'll play devil's advocate here, right, is people will say, well, gosh, you know, the, the endowment wasn't complete when Joseph died. Well, that's not true. That's the argument you get. Joseph's charge to Brigham was not to change anything. Joseph's exact words were systematize and organize, right? Everything was there, it just had to be put in its proper place. And that's what Brigham did. And so when people say, well, gosh, the, the endowment wasn't completely finished when Joseph got it, I would say it wasn't in its proper order, order. Yeah. but all the principles were there. Absolutely. And, and when you change that, especially, I, I'm a guy who believes that the waters are always purest at their source, right? So I always look back to Joseph and to Brigham to fact check what we're doing today. And when I see when I see temple changes being made in direct opposition to things Joseph had said, that I think that's cause for concern. A lot of red flags go up when that happens. Yeah. At what point do you think 
we get to where, because we're told, told, you know, God's not going to be mocked. How do you think, do you think the LDS church has crossed that threshold? Yeah, they crossed that threshold some time ago, I believe. And what happens is it's unfortunate, and we just start whittling away one little piece at a time, and the the LDS church has conceded to the United States government in a lot of things. As in, you know, if you don't change this, we'll take away your status as a 501c3 organization. If you don't allow this to happen or that to happen, we're, you know, we're going to take away that status and take away your money. I mean, it, it even came down in the time of Brigham Young when the members had to denounce living celestial plural marriage as one of the ordinances that was required. And the United States government was basically saying, if you don't give that up, we're going to come over and take everything you have. And that meant from everybody, because everybody was supposed to be consecrated. So that was going to be taking all the houses, homes, farmlands, etc. of everybody. So the concession was, okay, people had to sign a document back then and say, well, I'm I'm willing to give this up for that. You know, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't want the government in our business. And uh, the true government is God's government. And if he says something, by golly, that, that should be the way it is. Right. It's an interesting place that, that I think the LDS Church finds themselves in today. Because I feel like they've kind of painted themselves in the corner, and I think it was probably all due to, to you know, wanting to do the right thing or, or you know, do the best they can. But sometimes when you lay with dogs, you get fleas, right? <laughs> that was my grandmother's statement, and and I I worry that that perhaps there's been a little too much bowing the knee to the federal government in some respects, especially when it comes to things like. You know, your marital situation, whether you're married once or twice, whatever the case is in practicing plural marriage, or when you start looking at temple covenants. Because, again, if God is no respecter of persons, which the scriptures clearly state time and again, and we change the ordinances of exaltation to fit a certain people in a certain time, we we've turned God into a respecter of persons, or at least we've tried to turn God into a respecter of persons. And in some ways, I go back to what one Catholic theologian says w- said, which was all heresy begins with a preconceived with a uh, incorrect notion of who God is, and we're doing that by by doing this game where we're like, okay, you know what? We're not going to do that anymore. It's offending people's modern day sensibilities. And we're selling people short. That's the other thing, right? People are going through the LDS temple right now and they think they're getting what it takes to reach exaltation. exaltation. But if you listen to Joseph, that's not the case. No, it's not. And I guess if you're not willing to live all the laws, you don't get all the blessings. Right. 
I mean, there was the scripture in DNC 130, 20, and 21. And uh, I wish I had my scriptures with me. I oh. probably do. Oh, I got them, yeah. Oh. As a matter of fact, I could probably even bring it up on my phone. I hadn't even thought of that. Here you go. <laughs> well, you really want me to read small print, don't you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> um. This was a favorite scripture to uh, a lot of people. Holy mackerel. I like your scriptures. They're all painted. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... Mine tend to look like a coloring <clears throat> book. So in uh, section 130, 20 and 21, it says, There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of the world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. And if we're going to obey God's laws, he has certain covenants that he wants us to make. And if those covenants change and we're not living those covenants or doing them properly, then we're not covered by that. and we can't expect to even think that we're going to get the blessings because of it. Absolutely. It's like getting baptized and saying, well, that's all it needed. I'm a baptized member of the church. That's all I need to do, and I'll make exaltation. Well, no, there's more than baptism. And then it's required that we take upon, as men, that we take upon ourselves the priesthood, and that we move forward from there, and that we take out our endowments. And those endowments are just kind of like something that's very special for us. That's what helps us and teaches us. And part of those endowments are what they even call the mysteries of godliness. Okay? And so those are the things that teach us how to get back to our Father in Heaven. If we don't learn how to get back to our Father in Heaven, I guess we can't get back to our Father in Heaven. If it's not done properly... Then why is he? Would he accept it? Right, right. Because my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, part, just part of those covenants, are there to help us live a life in which it prepares us for his his glory. And if we're not living some of those covenants that he says, "Hey, you want to get where I'm at? Do these things." And and we'll make sure that you take a covenant in a special place. And by not doing that, it would be like taking a, a, a medical exam when really all you've prepared to take is an exam in, you know, underwater basket weaving. You're going to be woefully unprepared. And so part of these part of these covenants are there so we can can start practicing to be as God is. And. We're shortchanging people if we tell them it's one thing and it's not. Right. Well, <clears throat> one of the scriptures, and well, there's actually a few scriptures which it talks about that we need to learn line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Well, the problem is, is in the LDS church, it seems like, and maybe I shouldn't, and I'm not trying to bash them by any means. Sure. Um, is that they teach the same line upon the same line upon the same line, the same precept upon the same precept upon the same precept. 
here a little and there no more. <laughs> or here a little and take a little away and take a little more away and whittle it down until you get something. So now that in the LDS church, you're basically going through and, and having a really washed down version of the endowment that you can learn by because the symbology that is there, the things that we can learn by participating in something, of having the fullness and seeing all the tokens and signs and understanding really what the penalties are. Most people don't. Understanding the robes of the holy priesthood when we wear them. And the problem is, is nobody's really taught about that either. And we're not learning what we should be learning. Right. No, you're right. When, and spoiler alert, I, uh, I took out the full endowment while, when I joined Christ Church here and Dan, Dan is then, was then and still is the temple president. And like just that little bit, you remember that conversation we had after the endowment was over and you explained a ton of that, you know, with the robe, the ceremonial clothing and everything else. It was all stuff that I had never heard. But when you look at it, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's why that's there or that's why it's on this side or that side, whatever. There was a reason behind that. And that's not taught anymore. No. And, and, and again, I don't want to bash on, on members of the church or the church even, but I just think a lot of them just don't know anymore. No, they don't. And and that was something that I realized. I I enjoyed going through the temple uh, many times when I was a member of the LDS church. And I kept always wondering what this meant or what that meant. But they never provided an opportunity to ask questions. Right. You know, and I couldn't understand why they wouldn't. So... Because that's the place you're supposed to discuss it. Well, if people really understand, going to the temple is like going to uh, a college higher of higher education. I mean, where else do you go uh, where you get to wear robes and, and a miter upon your head? You know, isn't that like the form <laughs> of graduation? You're supposed to get up there. But the whole point of the temple is to learn to graduate to the next step. And to the next step. But what we're doing is we're just giving a people a taste of something, not the knowledge of it. Right. Big difference. <clears throat> About when did, did the LDS church start making temple changes? I mean, you know, how, how soon was it after, say, the Utah period starts that some of those changes start to happen? Well, I remembered going through it, like I said, in 1975, and that was uh, one of the times that, you know, they they had certain ordinances that I thought were important to have, and then probably one of the first changes that they made was changing the the temple garment itself. Now, for years, and this was an interesting story, my uh, my wife, Anne, she remembers and she shared it with me, talking about her aunts and stuff 
told her that when you go through the temple, make sure that you can wear the long garments, the temple garments, and don't wear anything else but that, because otherwise you're not really having the real garment upon you. And back in those days, they were, you'd go through the temple and they put on long sleeved, long legged garments on you. And they tell you that you must wear these throughout your life. Well, afterwards, you get done with that, you will go back, and then they give you what they call street garments, which are short. They're up to the knee. And now, if you look at the way garments are set up now, they're even above the knee, and the, and they're short-sleeved. And for women, some of them are practically sleeveless. And then even for the military, they have the idea that all you need to do is just paste the marks on the inside of a T-shirt or something, and that's okay. And that constitutes a garment. And I'm like, no, no, that's not right. But back to that story with my wife, her aunt told her, she said, when you go through the temple, make sure you wear the original garment that they give you. Because anything else other than that is, not, is incorrect. And there have been other prophets that have said so. Now, when did that change? That started changing during the time of Heber J. Grant. When he was the, the prophet, he decided and he conceded to the women, I believe, that wanted to wear the more modern styles of, of, of dress and, and wear during the, that time. Wait, so Heber J. Grant changed some stuff? Oh, yeah. He... I feel shocked. <laughs> oh, really? No. <laughs> I bet you don't. No, I don't. I, I think anybody who's listening to this podcast understands a lot of stuff changed for the LDS Church during Grant's administration, and uh, it's just continued. So, w let's talk about that for a second, right? Because that was something I didn't discover till I was probably five years into studying fundamentalism, is that, wait a second, there was a different garment? And, again, we did it to just kind of um, uh, suit worldly fashions right we did it to so we didn't seem so weird right yeah. and and newsflash when the lord says that he wants a peculiar peculiar people he's serious right he's not he's not messing around and so we, we change we change stuff when we think we're doing people a, a, a service and we're doing them a disservice because in our changing the program that god lays out we're we're trying to short-circuit his plan, right? Whether well-intended or not, that's that's what we're doing. Let me push back on, on that just a little bit, and let me ask you this question, because this is something I get from, from some folks uh, when, when they talk about the garment. Isn't the most important thing just the symbols on the garment? Does length really matter? Yeah, length does matter, because, like you were pointing out, we're supposed to be a peculiar people. Well, part of that peculiar—I oh, love that word—peculiarity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> between two of us, we should be able to get it. Yeah, maybe is modesty, and by wearing the original temple garment, you are in a sense pushed to the point of you will be modest if you're wearing that garment. And what's happened is, is modesty has kind of gone out the window. And so, okay, just because I draw stick figures on something doesn't make it what it's supposed to be. It's just 
signs, symbols, emblems, or whatever put on a piece of fabric, and we call it good. Right. Well, let me put it on a handkerchief, and I'll just carry that in my pocket. Well, there's a big difference of having something that has all the emblems on it and having something that has all the emblems that is correct and proper, and that's what we wear. I mean, otherwise, let's just carry a handkerchief with all the symbols on it and carry that in our pocket and call it good. Right. Right. No, you're you're 100% correct on that. When when people start trying to excuse certain things, I always get nervous, right? Whatever it is, you know, like, oh, it, that's not a big deal. We're okay on that. And then all of a sudden I'm like, are we? Are we really? Yeah. Because I know that that we sh- we short-circuit ourselves in getting to where we want to be. So it's under Grant that you start seeing the major temple changes? Right. What, so, what goes by the wayside first? Well, one of the big changes, of course, was the garment. He was shortening the sleeves so that women could sit there and wear uh, shorter sleeves, like three-quarter sleeves. And that was kind of a style that started going. And the the skirt length for women and stuff was such that it was coming up to about the calves. And so they couldn't wear those styles very easily wearing their garments. And so... That was a concession that was being made by him at the time. Um, I find it interesting. During his time also, that's when he started changing some of the ordinances we have. And it wasn't until after he messed it up that I believe it was David O. McKay that corrected it for the priesthood. That when the priesthood is given to a man, that you confer upon Mm -hmm. that man, the priesthood, and then you ordain him to the office. And President Grant decided, well, we're not going to confer the priesthood on him. We're just going to call him to the office of. Do they really have the priesthood then? No. No, No, they don't. And so then you have to start really asking a question for how many years that went on before it was corrected. And was it completely corrected all the way around? And how many men were running around or even running around today without the improper priesthood, without having it conferred upon them first and then ordaining them to the office? And there again, that was something else Grant did. Yeah. And what's interesting, and, and I studied that in depth, the, the priesthood conferral, I call it a crisis. Because what you have is you have Heber J. Grant, who by his own admission, because he, he addressed this. He said, look, I'm not a doctrinal scholar. I don't understand full ramifications for that. I believe it was Primrose. I could be wrong. But it was one of his counselors. He said, when I have a doctrinal issue, I go to Brother So-and-so. And Brother So-and-so said, we need to stop get, you know, conferring the priesthood and just ordain to an office. And they did that from like 1921 to like 1957. It was over 30 years, which is about a generation of activity. And then they never go back and try to fix it. And so what you have, if you follow what the scriptures say, you have a bunch of guys who never received the priesthood, who think they have it, and they run around and and think they're passing that along. And there's no way of knowing who really has priesthood, who doesn't. And the ramifications for that are huge. Absolutely. However, even in the LDS Church today, 
they properly, they say they are conferring the priesthood and then ordaining them to the office. However, then if you go into a, a ward or something from time to time, you'll see a man doing that and he'll forget. He'll forget to confer the priesthood. And you just sit there and start scratching your head. Why are they forgetting these things? Because they're not doing it enough to make sure that people know and understand right. how important that really is. Well, and I think even today now, we, we the question has to be asked. Who, who got the conferral of the priesthood back in 21? Who was alive to pass it on in 57? Right. And how many people actually have had priesthood conferral. Because if you don't have the priesthood, you can't confer it on somebody else. No, you can't. Not even if if you didn't have to receive it to begin with, and you use the proper words, it still doesn't make it right. If you don't have the priesthood, you can't give it to some other man right. at that point. And granted, that does come from God, and that should be revelation given. When we do give priesthood and confer the priesthood on, on another man. So, yeah, that is something that I believe is absolutely important. Right. So as far as temple covenants, what did he change? <sighs> what did he change? Um, gosh. No, and, and not even Grant, right? What, right. What, what was the first thing that, that went away, so to speak? Oh, let's see. Yeah, the garment was greatly modified and shortened to comply with the fashions and standards set uh, by the world. Uh, the first is changed to a street garment and then became the sport garment worn by the LDS today, which I think, okay, fine. If you have really pay attention to them, those garments kept getting shorter and shorter. I remember when I was a member of the LDS church, back in the 70s, and I worked in the coal mines and was able to find long sleeve, or actually long sleeve and long-legged garments. They were basically uh, your winter garments. Right. And we wore those when I was in the coal mines, and that was probably the closest thing to getting back to the original garment that you could back at that time. But now you can't even hardly find, and I don't even think you can find today, any long-legged garments. Uh, they stopped making those. Um, and now, you know, you have two-piece garments and you have everything else that's been lost as to what the garment used to, to explain and tell you. Yeah, yeah. I I think... I think the first massive change, and I'm, I'm just going to list them out here. These, these okay. are some of the ones that I, I, if memory serves correctly. So you had the lecture at the Veil go away, and we'll dive into that later. Then you had uh, the penalties that went away. Oh, well, Oath of Vengeance, excuse me. Oh, here, here's one for you. The Hebrew Grant also rewrites the women's Oath of Obedience. Um, that was something that was taken out, and that was in 1922. After 1921, when he decides, well, I hear I'm going to sit there and and make the garments shorter and everything for the women, and then uh, he writes 
also rewrites the oath uh, of obedience. Um, and that's one of the major oaths. Not saying that a woman should be completely subservient to her husband. She should be a helpmeet. She should be something much more than just obedient to her husband. Before before we go down that road, without okay. without going deep into verbiage, let's explain the the oath of, of obedience. Okay. It's my understanding that it was a man promised to be obedient to God. Correct. And then his wife then covenanted to follow his lead, to be obedient to her husband's counsel. Correct or incorrect? That is correct. Okay. I mean, she if if you follow how history went, and if that woman is supposed to be his queen and everything, and a priestess, that kind of also implies that she is up there with him in rank and honor and in glory and everything else. But you always followed lead to the king, so to speak. But a man as a king was a vassal king, just like we are supposed to be vassal kings unto our father in heaven. He's a suzerain king. Um, and you notice how kingdoms and kingships worked even in the Book of Mormon and stuff, where you had the Lamanites and they had Lamanite kings. And then usually the junior kings were their sons, you know, and had different tribes spread out that they'd always have to come back. Now, for the women as a queen or to her husband is to follow his lead in righteousness. And if he's not righteous, no woman should have to follow a man. Right. There was a caveat placed on that. Absolutely. Just like there was when in uh, <clears throat> spacing on the section, I think it's 121 again, where the Lord says, you can only maintain the priesthood by on principles of long-suffering, patience, and love. And anybody who tries to exercise the priesthood outside of those bounds will amen to his priesthood, meaning he's got no power. He may have authority, but he's got no power. Right. And and it's kind of the same caveat there, right? Is that in that covenant, it's pretty clear. If your husband's being wicked, you don't have to join in the wickedness with him. Am I right or wrong in that? No, and you are absolutely correct uh, in all of that. And, I mean, it's interesting. We're, we're supposed to be considered the Lord of our families. Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to guide them and lead them. Just like a good, righteous king is to lead his kingdom properly and righteously. Like Mosiah was a good king. And giving examples you know, to, to his people. Well, you start with the example to your wife, the example to your children. And when you're not, and you're exercising what's called priestcraft, that means you're lording over them to a point of putting the thumb on them and holding them back and holding them down and belittling or whatever. That's incorrect. That's a bad principle. Right. If you're doing that, and that's called priestcraft. So how did they change that, as you were about to get to there? I believe, uh, I don't know. I really wasn't there when uh, 
Brant rewrote the women's oath of obedience to them. So, to be honest, that would only be speculation based off of okay. some of the reading that I've done and and some of the information that's come over the years. But, um, I mean, today, they don't make any promise to uh, their husbands no. or anything. It's just, oh, I'm... Here I am, and I'm. I do the same thing that my husband does, right? And that went away, twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen, because I was still a member of the LDS Church when that went away, mm-hmm. and that bugged me deeply. Not because I'm a chauvinist, not because I feel like I need to be in charge, but because this was the structure of the king of, of the kingdom of God, right? This was the structure upon which families were meant to operate. And the basic unit of any society is that family. And so if you're going to start redefining that, then you're going to redefine the the society of God, so to speak. Or at least you're going to try really hard. And that's what bugged me, was this idea of, okay, so now we're toying with God's government, the way he governs everything. I believe one of the big things or changes even that I, I always thought was important and then taught us a great principle of file leadership. And a lot of LDS people don't quite understand that. But in the temple, it gives you a, a good understanding and knowledge of how file leadership really works. Because if you really look at it, when you're talking about Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael, that was grandfather God, that was Father God, that was Son God, and they were all in the same line of priesthood as in Father, you know, Grandfather to Father to Son passed down. Now, if you noticed how when that goes on, you always had that one thing, uh, go down, do this, take care of that, and then return and report. So then they returned and report. And how often do we do that? How often do we tell our children, go out and mow the lawn? And if you don't check on it, it may not get done. However, if your son came in and said, hey, dad, I just mowed the lawn, he returned and reported to you, saying, I got the job done. Yeah, and and let's talk about that, because I know some of that has went away out of the LDS ceremony. That is so important because if we would just pattern our lives and our families, just just take that one little piece, how many more teaching opportunities would you have as a father to a son or to a daughter or a mother to her daughters or mothers to sons, right? Go do this, come back, let me know how it went, right? Absolutely. Because then you have the, the opportunity to be like, okay, how'd it go? And someone would say, well, this, this, and this, and this. Oh, I'll tell you why that didn't go so smooth. Let's try it like this now, and let me tell you why. And this is based off of experience. And it it creates those teaching opportunities. And by getting rid of that, you get rid of that pattern. People don't know about it. And you're missing out on opportunities to teach your children. Well, and then we're... Missing out on opportunities to learn and to understand. That's one of those concepts that now is going to be forever lost and forgotten. Right. Because they'll go, well, that just doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. It doesn't. 
really? Exactly. You know, a Heavenly Father expects certain things from us, but if we don't know what, what He expects of us, how can we sit there and do anything properly for Him? Right. Right. No, 100%. All right, so they changed... They changed the law of obedience. What was the next big change? Well, when we were talking about obedience and stuff, um, we were mentioning that about the wives, but you had uh, the law of obedience and sacrifice, which those two are extremely important. You have to have both of them together. Those are things that we need to, to learn. And I and I don't know uh, exactly the wording that they use in the LDS temple nowadays or not, but to learn and understand how obedience and sacrifice works in our lives is extremely important. So obedience and sacrifice, you know, we learn that from the scriptures. You know, Adam did what God asked him to do. And in other places, we learn that Adam did things he didn't understand. What is that? That's obedience. Okay. Well, sacrifice was giving up of the first fruits of of the field and the firstlings of the flock. And that was sacrifice. And that was something important because when you sacrifice your lambs or you're sacrificing a bull, I mean, these are major sacrifices, but like the scriptures say that uh, obedience is better than the sacrifices of lambs. So, what does that really mean? Be obedient and sacrifice, both. But if you're not being obedient, it doesn't matter how much sacrificing you're doing. Right. Oh, okay. Well, here's a hundred bucks. There's a sacrifice. Was it a sacrifice for a millionaire? Hundred bucks ain't nothing, right? I guess too. I guess we can look at that too in 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 a more spiritual sense as well, right? It would be like saying you have a contrite heart or a broken heart and a contrite spirit, but yet you continue the, to do the same, the same crap, thing. right? And and you're you're just are you really brokenhearted? Do you really have a contrite spirit? Because if so, I would think you would be motivated to at least put forth some effort to try to fix it. <coughs> well, you can always see the the true changes of a broken heart and a contrite spirit in people right. because they change. Yeah. They change for the better. They change for the good. You know, it's kind of like repenting or even the word repentance. I find interesting if people got rid of the idea of the the stigma that's put behind repentance, because that means, oh, you committed grave sins or this, that, or the other. Not necessarily. We can repent of little things. However, all repentance really means is to return to God. Right. You know, when we mess up, if we're repentant, that means we're returning back to God. We're returning to what he wants us to be and what we're supposed to be like him right the the other thing is that because i don't want to seem too harsh here right i don't want to seem more harsh than what my heavenly father is 
Because certainly there's been times when I've had to overcome sin and error and all those things. And I screwed up again, right? I screwed up once or twice or whatever. I'm not saying that you get one shot at repentance and if you messed it up, then you're not truly repentant. What I would say is that not, not taking it lightly, understanding you've screwed up. And you can tell someone who's truly sorry versus someone who's sorry that they got caught. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. And so oftentimes I think we get those two things conflated. So that's obedience and sacrifice. It's basically saying, I'm going to do as you say. Now, it was my understanding as well is that part of the sacrifice, part of obedience and sacrifice was that the Lord was going to provide the ultimate sacrifice at some point, right? And so this idea of you're going to be obedient, you are going to mess up, so we're going to have a sacrifice, Christ's atonement, that was going to make up the difference. Is that a correct understanding of that? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. Um, And therein lies something that a lot of people miss and misunderstand in the endowment when you realize that Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael were all Christ's right. for their particular planets or worlds that they had. And it, it's an order of Christ, and you look at that, and, and it helps teach you something to get ready for and to prepare for. Not that we will ever become Christ ourselves. I'll never be perfect, and, you know, eventually I'll... I'll move along and, and become more perfected, but doubtful that I'll ever be as great as my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what people don't understand, well, that's Jesus Christ, the son of Michael Christ. Right. And, and then Jehovah was Jehovah Christ. And Elohim just basically means the head of the gods. And who was that? Who You know, I don't have all those answers yet, but we learn things line upon line, precept upon precept. And I've, I've felt blessed in becoming a member of the branch by learning so much more. There's so much richness and depth into what the true temple ordinance is like and, and what we learn. Now, like you said, I'm not going to divulge things that are sacred and secret. I mean, do we do things in there? Absolutely. And if those that ever become members of the branch and stuff, my wife and I, we teach temple classes that prepare you to go. And so you'll know what to expect. And there is no surprises. And we allow people the opportunity to learn and to grow step by step. Well, you need to be prepared before you go to the temple. How many times, like when you went to the LDS temple, that was probably a little shock for you because they didn't give you any idea what they were going to do. I Yeah, I, I could see how that could be for people. I was an oddity, right, in the sense that I asked enough probing questions while even coming into the LDS temple. And a lot of this I, I got. But if I'd have went in cold, right, if I'd have taken the class because I had to take the temple prep class, Mm-hmm. And they don't tell you about anything. And then all of a sudden you're in here and you're like, I just joined a cult. 
Right? That's, that's <laughs> the first thing. That's the first thing you, you would think, right? Is yep, I just I just joined a cult, right? Without explanation behind some of this, oh, I could totally see how people would get freaked out. And when it, it's so sad to me when I hear people say, because that's a big thing now coming from kind of the the post post Mormon crowd is that oh I had a horrible experience in the temple. Well, I I get that, but let's let's narrow down why it was horrible, right? Would it feel culty, so to speak, if you weren't prepared? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. But once you have those principles explained to you, oh, well then, then things begin to make sense, right? And and things begin to click. So when when I hear of of someone who said, you know, my my temple, and there's a ton of them who who say, you know, I went once and I was like, never again, never again. It's sad because I'm like, they just weren't prepared. No, they weren't. Right. And, and that's part of it. You have got to be prepared going into this. You have to have somebody who's wiser than you at that moment to say, here's some of the things that you're going to talk, you know, you're going to learn about. Right. And hey, don't be wigged out, but you're going to see ceremonial clothing. And this is kind of covenant making process. Right. All that kind of gets explained a little bit. And it's not so spooky anymore. Right, it's not so culty looking, for lack of a better term. I'm not sure if culty is a real world word, but we just made it one. Yeah. So, yeah, I I I remember when I went through, and and I don't think I was as shocked as some people feel they were shocked when they went through, because I was there to actually learn. Because I'm thinking all of this means something. And what does it all mean? And when you see the symbology of it all, and now they're taking away all the symbology of it, and now you don't get the whole, the whole instruction. You don't get the whole feeling. You don't get the big picture. You don't see the full puzzle. You don't get it all. Right. You just get a little fraction of it and go, oh, okay. Well, that's what I'm supposed to accept. That's what I'm supposed to learn from it. Well, yeah, and and because and and see, this is where where I feel like that this conversation is is sorely needed within Mormonism, both from a fundamentalist perspective and an LDS perspective, is because we've had to skirt this line of not revealing too much. But in process of doing that, we've left people to be susceptible to um, not know what they don't know, right? If you've never been to an, quote, original endowment, what was given from the Lord to Joseph, and you've never experienced that, and you go to an LDS temple or a temple, a place where the temple ordinances have been changed, and that's all you know, how would you know something's different? Yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't, right? And so it's hard for me to find fault with folks who all of a sudden have their minds blown because they're like, well, nobody told me about that, right? What What is that? And and is that really necessary? I, I don't blame them for having their minds blown, right? I mean, I remember when I first read about the old endowment, I was like, oh, 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 that, 
we were supposed to be doing that. Yeah. Right. And so it, it, it is a bit, it is a bit, um, a disadvantage because you can't reveal too much. But yet, if you're going to sound an alarm bell, you have to raise enough questions to have people start looking back and go, Oh, something's wrong here. So it's, it's a fine line we have to skirt. But so we have obedience and sacrifice. What comes next? What's the next covenant we make in the temple? Gosh. Hold on. No, you're good. You're good. I'm just going to make a note and I'll edit this out. Okay. You're just fine, Dan. I'm, I'm drawing my blanks right now. You're good. What's the Wi-Fi password here? Uh, good question. Let me call in and I can probably find out. That way I can jump on and and you know what? While you're calling Ann, I'm going to stop this and just. All right. So real quick, we we've kind of covered the law of obedience and sacrifice, and we explained why that was important and how it's changed. I think it's worth mentioning that that hasn't changed in Christ Church. It's still the original covenant that was given from Joseph and then organized by Brigham, and it's carried forth to this time. So we've talked about how important it is and why it's there. Let's move on to the law of the gospel. Can you explain just maybe, you know, again, without getting too sensitive or in in places we shouldn't, what is the law of the gospel exactly? Well, I think there's, there again, it's something that you have to take inside of you as in a compilation of everything that consists of the gospel. The law of the gospel, the gospel of the Old Testament, the gospel of the New Testament, the Gospels or the things that uh, we have in the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, things like that, those are all laws and things that we learn about. I mean, you learn in the from the Old Testament that there were certain laws, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But when you learn the higher laws, it is turn the other cheek. You know, if somebody right. wants something from you, you give them your cloak as well. You 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 learn to give and 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 such. Now, those are parts of the gospel. If you think about it, when Moses left with his people and stuff, and he tried, and Moses tried to get the people to learn to talk to God, well, they didn't want to, so right. they were given a lesser law. Right? Well, lesser laws mean you get lesser blessings, lesser things provided for you. You live the higher laws and you get the higher blessings. And that's kind of really how it helps you to learn while we're going through the the temple. Uh, I think of it as in the LDS church and we as, as the branch, we try to live all the laws, the laws of, of uh, sacrifice, uh, of course, and obedience, but the, the law of, of consecration. But in the gospel, you also have in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 132. And a lot of people just want to talk about that as, well, that just talks about marriage. It's a little more than that, because if you read the preface to the whole thing, it tells you exactly what it's talking about. 
right. a plural marriage. But, boy, that's a f- forbidden word, isn't it? I'm surprised they haven't gotten that and completely thrown it out of the, the Doctrine and Covenants. You know, it, it's funny you should bring that up. Jacob Verdreen and I just had an episode. I haven't published it yet, but we talked about that. That if you go back and you look at historical records, when they were talking about the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, they weren't talking about just being sealed, yep. right? It was synonymous with this idea of plural marriage. And and if that's the case, if that's how it was revealed, and then you take covenants that you're going to adhere to the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, uh-oh, because yeah. now you've taken a covenant and you don't even know what it means. Yeah. You don't know what you're promising to do. So I like what you said there about the law of the gospel as well as that it's encompassing, right? It's not, because I think modern Christendom has this idea that, well, that was the Old Testament. That was the old law. And there's nothing there that really applies to us now. And we just focus now just on the New Testament, right? And not that focusing on the New Testament is a bad thing. But if you're neglecting one whole part of the law, well, you're 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 not understanding what it is God's trying to teach you. And I remember the first time I remember hearing in the temple about the law of the gospel. And I remember I went home and I'm like, oh, I got to start reading a lot more. I better start understanding this because I just made a covenant to that I was going to live the gospel. And I think I think that. That law within the, and that covenant within the temple is so unique because there I think the Lord is saying, because I don't think he expects us to be perfectly versed in all the scriptures and all the laws before we go into the temple. So I think sometimes I feel like this one's unique because he's like, don't forget to read these scriptures. You're going to need them. Right. And so it's almost one of those things like, yes, we're making a covenant that we're going to live all this. But with the understanding of, you better go do some more reading, young man or young woman, because you've got a lot more you need to understand. Absolutely. Um, the law of the gospel, like I said, it's all-encompassing. If we don't have a good grasp or understanding of it, you know, what are we really learning? Well, we learn the idea of, well, we have to repent, right? Right. Is that it? Or is there more? There's way more. Yeah, well, you got baptism, and then it's sad, but then there's also rebaptism because we all make mistakes. Yes, don't we? And if you think you don't, think again. Right, right. At the moment you think you're not messing up, you have to reevaluate because if you're done messing up, God's like, "Come on home." Yeah, come on home. You're good. Come on home. Right. So if you're still here, if you're still in this mortal sphere. You got some stuff you got to learn, and that usually means repenting as well. Let me ask you this, and I'm going to ask this gently. And if this crosses a line, you tell me, and then I'll make sure this gets edited out. Is not the law of the gospel one of those things where we say we won't do certain types of laughter? Yeah. That was recently gotten rid of, too, in this last batch of temple changes. Seriously. They got rid of the part about laughter. Now, for though, and I'm trying to be sensitive here, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Dan, because you're a temple president. You know a lot. 
you know more about, you've probably forgotten more about this stuff than I'll ever learn. But that covenant doesn't say you can't laugh. No, it just says to avoid anything <coughs> that's somewhat boisterous. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. Well, I would or not even boisterous. What am I? I, w- I would think of making light of sacred things. Absolutely. I and, <clears throat> am I off base for assuming that that's what that part of the covenant means? Is don't take things that are sacred and turn them into a joke. Right. Don't turn them into a punchline. Is that an unfair or an inaccurate way of looking at that? That would be a good way of looking at it. But you think about when you're talking about laughter, I think we can we can giggle a little, we can we can smile, we can understand. Because I honestly believe that our Father in Heaven has a sense of humor. I know he does. You want to know how I know? Yeah, he created me. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> the platypus. The platypus. There's an animal with a duck bill. Yep. Lays eggs. Has a part pouch like a marsupial. A beaver tail and a poisonous spur. I mean, if that's not hilarious, oh I goodness. don't know what is. I mean, it, it's almost like God basically making fun of anybody who's for evolution. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how you explain that animal. But yeah, no, I agree. He's got a sense of humor. That yeah, he he does. He does. I know he does. And 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 the best way to see some of his humor is if all you have to do is look at people's lives and see the ironies that happen in their lives. Yeah. You know, the the person that says, "Oh, I would never do that." Be careful. Avoid that person because that's going to be the person that's going to end up doing it. Dude, I've got one. I've got <clears throat> one that's that's right up your alley. Though. And I apologize because I know you're originally from California. But around during the pandemic in Utah, we had a flood of Californians move in. And like the roads were always horrible now. There's always at least one accident. And I'm like, keep it. I'm actually keeping track of like how many of them have California license plates, right? That are in the accidents I pass by. And, uh, and I'm not saying Utah drivers are great either. I'm not saying that one bit. Anyway. So I was constantly like, oh, Californians, right? Uh-huh. Where did I marry my wife? You know, my wife, the one I just married, I imported her from <laughs> California. <laughs> so not just California, Los Angeles, right? Uh-huh. So it was like, God was like, oh, oh, you think? Watch this young man. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that <clears throat> part about laughter is treat sacred things. Don't don't make a punchline out of sacred things. No, and I I would dare to say it probably goes into to understanding. There's a time where hey you're cutting it up with the fellas or whatever, but then there's a time where you got to focus in, right? And if you're if your disposition is to always be in that that mode of cracking a joke, that doesn't lend itself to a lot of self reflection. Is that a good way of looking at it? Yeah, I think so. Another portion of that is we talked about the laughter and then speaking evil of someone. Right. Think about that. And who does it specifically point out in that? The Lord's anointed. Yeah. So if we're backbiting or we're talking badly or poorly of somebody, stop and think. How do you know or you don't know if they are one of the Lord's anointed. Yes. I think 
I think to some extent, and again, I'm willing to be wrong here, I think we're all anointed at some level, right? We all have some mission to fulfill. Well, absolutely, but you really think about it. Those that have gone through the temple and taken out their endowments, isn't that what they are? Absolutely. Joseph Smith said so. Yeah. So, I mean, we need to be careful of what we say about whom and whom we say it about, etc. It's just, okay, that means we need to take the time to reflect upon it and say, okay, before I start talking bad about a person, who are they really? Well, first off, they're a son of God. Right. And that means they're my brother. And am I talking bad about my brother? You know, now, given the other end of that, yeah, Satan's my brother too, but he isn't anointed. and He's a bad guy. He got kicked out. He'll never have that. He'll never have that blessing and stuff that comes with it. And so, therefore, not that I, I don't spend a lot of time speaking evil of him. I don't need to. Everyone knows he's a bad guy. Right. You know, that's kind of clear and to the point. But just because somebody messes up, makes a mistake, or does something wrong, doesn't mean that's a perpetual, they're bad for the for all eternity. No. And that's not for us to sit there and judge. No. And, and I think the other thing is, is, if we've been offended by somebody, we also need to go into the New Testament and see where it says, you pull that guy off to the side privately. Right. You have a private conversation saying, bro, you screwed up, and here's what I think. And I would also also say, your your first reaction may not be the correct reaction, right? You may say something to the effect of, this guy really irritated me or whatever. Maybe that wasn't his intent. So ask a few questions first and then get to the bottom of it. Yeah. So I, th- I think I think that idea of, of, of evil speaking is interesting, too, because the temple... In, in my understanding, is is the gateway into almost a different organization, right? You're, you're starting to deal with things of the kingdom, not just the church. And in the kingdom, we're supposed to be united. And I think that, that that part of that covenant in particular is very much geared towards this idea of becoming united somehow. Being able to look over somebody else's faults and just be willing to to offer the same grace that you would hope to get from somebody else or, or even our savior. So awesome. Anything else you want to add on the law of the gospel there, Dan? No, I think that to me there again, I'm not the, the man of all knowledge and knowing, but that is what I take from it. And as I keep going to the temple myself, I'll keep learning more and more. And like say, what that also means is we need to pick up the scriptures, like you say. We need to learn them. We need to have a good understanding. Or if you really want to have fun, go into the uh, Proverbs and start reading Proverbs and stuff and get to learn who we are, what we are, what we're made of, what was really meant for us to be able to do what we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to think about it. So um, those are those are some of the things that I think of as well. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, it teaches, those things 
teach us a lot of things because there's so much wisdom in in Proverbs. so many different laws and examples and, and stuff that were taught over time. It's almost like the Lord through that covenant is saying, just promise me you're going to keep learning. Just promise me you're going to go back and you're going to keep figuring stuff out and keep working towards it. And, and we'll work together on, get, on, on getting you up where you need to be. And, and I, I find in the law of the gospel just this beautiful, I think... That law, as with all of them, but especially that one, you can really see a caring Heavenly Father trying to direct his children back to him through learning, right? Continue to learn. Continue to grow. Continue to under, try to understand what my will is for you. And they can be found in the scriptures. They can be found in the words of, of prophets. They can be found through the Spirit. But just keep learning. Yeah, keep trying, keep learning. And so long as we do that, we haven't lost. When we give up, we've lost. Yep. Yep, exactly. And and I think that's something else important to say here, too, is that uh, I'll just speak for me. We're always still learning. Always still going to make mistakes and, and mess up. But that doesn't mean we quit trying, right? Um, I look at it, it. This took me a while to wrap my head around. So I've. Since the last time I was up here, I think I dropped 10, 10 pounds. Awesome. But I still continue to screw up, right? Like, I'll be driving home, and I call Amber or Tanya, and I'm like, hey, what's for dinner? And they're like, oh, we have a salad. And I'm like, that sounds fantastic. Now, in my goal of trying to lose weight, that should be the thing I go for. But instead, I'm like, Look, there's a Carl's Jr. right there. <laughs> and I know for a fact that they have a famous star that would be just fantastic right now. And then I'm like, oh, see, you screwed up. You were trying to eat better and you messed up. And now you've blown that. What's the point of going to the gym? And my buddy who who's helping me through this, he's a kinesiology professor at Boise State. Yeah. He said, if you were trying to learn how to play the piano, if you hit a wrong note, would you stop? It's like, well, no. And he's like, then why are you giving up going to the gym if you have one crappy meal? And I think the same principle applies to the gospel. Just because you hit a wrong note, you don't stop trying to figure out how to play the piano. Well, if you hit a wrong note in the gospel, it doesn't mean you just throw it all out. It means you go back and you continue to try to get better and you can try to practice. Now, obviously, some sins are bigger than others. And will require a little more correction, if you will. But the principle still applies. Stop, reboot, reload, and then go back after it again. But, awesome. Alright, so this one's pretty self-explanatory. But I feel like not living it definitely has its own set of consequences. And that's the law of chastity. That's the next covenant we take in the temple. And that covenant says that you're not going to have any physical or I would even say emotional um, romantic connections with anybody outside of your husband or wife. And let me refer, let me make sure I get this clear. I'm not saying that if you're two dudes married that that's a good thing either. No. Within 
the realms of your heterosexual marriage. You well, will not venture outside those bounds. Right. Well, even the Lord told us and said that we're not even supposed to even lust after another woman. Right. Well, doesn't mean I committed that sin. Yeah, it does. If you sat there and lusted after a woman and you played things out in your brain, it even tells you in the scriptures that you've committed that sin in that regard. Well, granted, it's in degrees by varying degrees. You didn't physically attack that woman, but you did in your brain. And that wasn't right. And that has to be corrected. Well, the problem is, is if we do things like that in our brains, we start thinking about it, then we start acting upon things. And you've got to change your whole mindset about that and stop lusting after or stop coveting after or whatever. And to me, that's all part of the law of chastity as well. Because if we correct how we think, then we think a lot better. Well, yeah, and and we don't do anything without really thinking about it first. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, You have to run through the scenario in your head to get to that point. And so if you're going through that scenario, understand you're essentially stretching before the game. Right? And you're you're setting yourself up to be in that horrible situation. I couldn't agree with you more. You gotta shut that down early. Way early. I think look, we can look around today and we can see the ramifications of what happens to a society when you don't live those principles. Um and I would say it's all the way up to death. Now, I know some people right there just rolled their eyes, but how many how many pregnancies end up in abortion because the law of chastity wasn't lived? Probably, well, there again, millions. Yeah, yeah. And, and millions of abortions have happened over the years. And, and the other thing is, is that... <clears throat> I would say this, because of um, our powers of procreation, we're, when, when, when we're living the, the law of chastity, as it is explained in the temple, we are engaged in helping father's children get here. Those are sacred things. And the misuse of them has to be one of the most blasphemous things we can do in the eyes of our Father. Well, just look at all the heartache and and problems that happens when we don't live the law of chastity and stuff. We break our wives' hearts. We, We mess up families. We destroy families by doing that at times because then trust is lost. And when trust is lost, you know, Everything gets lost at that point. Yeah. So, um, like you say, without going in depth about what, you know, the law of chastity, it's pretty simple. You know, don't think about it, don't do it. Yeah. Real straightforward and real simple. This one's a big one, Dan, this next one. The law of consecration. Basically, it's saying we give it all for the Lord for his kingdom. Sometimes I think we have a tendency of saying, 
Oh, I'd die for the gospel. I'd die for the gospel tomorrow. But would you live for it now? And and that's where I think people can kind of get hung up, is this idea of sometimes it's a living sacrifice you have to do. You have to be willing to forego your comforts, maybe, to be about your father's business. Well, the law of consecration, to me, that's it's sad, but... Um, you know, in Brigham Young's time, when he came to the Salt Lake Valley, he set up certain places such as Orderville, and they were living consecration there, and they were doing the best they could with what they had. And it was to teach us how to live in a community, in a society where we share. And the hard thing for men is to share their stuff. For a woman, hard thing for them to share is their husband. But being consecrated means being able to give of yourself constantly. So doesn't mean you have to give up everything you have because you're still a steward over these things and we're given stewardships. But to be consecrated means when my wife and I got married and we had her mom join the family. We ended up mixing three households worth of furniture. Now, that's a lot of furniture. We had three couches. We had plenty of beds. We had plenty of dressers. We had everything, so much so that we're storing stuff out in the building. And then I realized by coming here, I'm going, okay, what can I do to help? So I put out the word, is there anybody that needs beds? Is there anybody that needs couches? Is there anybody that needs things? Well, I don't need them anymore. I have plenty. So I give those up. Give them to the Lord. Give them to my brothers and sisters that uh, need or have need of, of certain items. So I gave up quite a bit in learning part of that consecration that we're supposed to live. Um, give up your time, your talents, your means, even your very life. That Well, we hear that. But do we live it? Do we understand it? Now, time in the LDS church is, okay, I give up a couple hours a Sunday. And I don't even, I think things have changed over the years. It used to be home teaching, now it's visiting teaching, or for the ministering, women. Ministering, yeah. Yeah, ministering now. Let's change all the names as best we can. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine, I guess. But <clears throat> I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, no, you're good. You, you were saying that, you know, our time yeah. is one of those things that we said. So, Time, like I said, was was in that part. For us here in the branch, we sacrifice and give up like a Saturday. Our Saturdays, not just Sundays, but Saturdays. And we do work projects, and they call them a work party. Wow. At first, I was sitting there going, well, that ain't party like I used to. <laughs> However, but what I did learn was, yeah, this is even the best party. Because when you're working hand-in-hand, shoulder-to-shoulder, elbow-to-elbow with another brother, 
and building something that's helping building up the kingdom of God, helping somebody else out, doing some things that would support them and help them, that's sacrificing your time. Your talent, well, are you a carpenter? Are you a plumber? Are you an electrician? Well, there's talents there for many things. My wife's talent is in computer work and and such, and so she is the temple matron. She does a lot of research and and taking care of the genealogy and stuff and and the records and record keeping uh, for the branch as far as that goes. What we do in the temple, that's a form of consecration and of time and of talent. And and our means, well, means is like the money that we have. Well, here... Not only do we pay tithing, but we also pay an order fee, and that helps us to establish the order and help it along even better. Because those things, like I just showed you not that long ago, showing the the freeze dryers that we have and what we're doing. But who does that benefit? That benefits everybody out here that are working together to try to get that. So if somebody needs... You'll notice we have a pantry of food and things that we're trying to rotate through. And if somebody needs something to eat, we give it to them. Yeah. And the cost is what we're... Basically, there is no cost as far as monetary value. But the cost is what are we able to provide from our hearts and our our means. Well, means is those extra couches, those extra beds, those things I didn't need, those are just given and donated to the Lord and, and then going to people that do need them. Absolutely. And and having been out here and, and seeing the work that gets done, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's amazing. What do you think... What do you think stops us from being more, and when I say us, I mean not just members of the branch, not just LDS people, not just independent fundamentalists, but Mormons across the spectrum. What prevents us from being more consecrated people? What prevents us from being that? Our willingness to give because we become selfish. We become, well, These are my things. These are, this is my stuff. This is my time. When we realize, no, our time is God's time. God determines and decides how long we live on this earth. And we've got to choose and figure out that we've got to make relationships count. We've got to make things work between us, our brothers, our sisters, those are things that we're giving. What's the difference is how much are we able to give and do for someone else? I remember there was a quote by Brigham Young where he was talking to the saints about the saints. And he said, I fear for this people when they become prosperous. We, it's a real easy trap to fall into. Right where you're like, well, I worked for that. That's that's mine. I, I worked for that. And I'll say this: th- there should probably be a little bit of that in there because it helps you value something, right? But when that becomes your god, 
when that becomes the end all be all of why you're doing what you're doing, you got to stop and reassess, right? Because your heart's not where it should be at that point. Um, I think Jesus was being very literal when he said, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all things will be added, right? When, when I think from a gospel perspective, when you get your mind right, God's willing to, and your heart right, God is willing to bless you with more because he knows you're going to be someone who can offer relief to others. And I think this law of consecration speaks also to to this idea of you're working for something bigger than yourself. Um, and that's something we haven't been really good at as a people instilling in our kids. If you want to talk about why this upcoming generation seems to be so out of alignment, I think it's because we haven't given them anything bigger than themselves to work on. And I feel like this idea of consecration is a good way of getting someone into a worthy cause. The cause. And if we can get our kids' heads kind of screwed on right, First, by screwing on our own heads right and getting our hearts right with God, there's there's nothing stopping us from being able to build Zion, to to get that society that we've wanted. Agreed. All right, folks, this is the part where if you're an LDS person and you want to know maybe some of the big things that were that have left the LDS church, you're going to want to pay attention to these next few items. Cause I think these are going to be ones that are going to be super interesting to you. And they're also <clears throat> super important. One of the things that, and, and I remember this from when Mitt Romney was running for president, they said, you know, you received your endowments in such a, in such and such date, right? Meaning a year. Um, did you take the penalties? And for a lot of members, there was a moment of, what What are the penalties? Can you give a very non-invasive answer to what the penalties are and why they were important? Well, the best way I can explain this without... Uh, Given away the farm, so to speak. Sure. Um, because I, I like you and like others, we've, we've taken an oath and a promise not to divulge too many things. Well, the penalties, see, the Lord gives us something. In other words, there are always consequences for our actions. And every action has a result. Or reaction. Every action, there's a, a, a either a positive or a ne negative reaction to it. Well, the best way I can describe this is that in the time of Christ, when Judas betrayed his Lord and Savior on the earth, he realized the mistake he made. And he needed, he felt that he had to atone for that. And when he hung himself, 
the branch broke, he basically was showing forth a couple of the the penalties that there were for that by hanging himself by the neck. And when the rope broke and he fell and basically his guts were splattered out, it says that in the scriptures. And that's two of the penalties that he paid just for betraying his Lord and Savior in that regard. I mean, I I don't want to, I, I can't really take the time to explain everything, but I find it interesting and, and that God is a God of justice and he's a God of mercy. And both have to be fulfilled. And he allows us to learn what those things are. And if we do what we're supposed to do, he will be a God of mercy to us continually. When we don't, justice will prevail in one way or another. Now, I believe God is a merciful God. He's a loving God. And I don't believe for one minute that God is a God that will punish somebody forever and ever and ever. He doesn't do that. We don't do that as parents to our children. We tell them, stay out of the cookies, or you can't watch TV during a certain time, or clean up your room, or you don't get something. Well, if they don't clean up their room, then what happens? They don't get to go play with their friends. There's a consequence for that. That doesn't mean they're not going to not be able to play with their friends ever again. But we're going to sit there and, and administer something to them so that they know and understand. Okay? You don't clean up your room. You don't get, don't get to play. You don't get to watch TV. You can't be on your Nintendo. You can't do this or can't do that. Well, whatever it is we decide, but that doesn't last forever and ever. Believe it or not, that child grows up and he learns from his experiences. And if he understands that you're a loving father or mother, then he will want to do better. And then the next time you ask him and say, well, it doesn't matter. You're still going to have to clean up your room. You made the mess, not me. It's not my job to pick up everything. I like all those signs. It's that, that you see in a lot of businesses and says your mother doesn't work or your right. mother doesn't work here. Clean up after yourself. Uh, those are some of the things I think about when I see them. And I'm thinking, yep, doesn't that apply to us as well? Um, no, you're, 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 you're just fine. I think, I think with, with the penalties, it, it's just that. And I think the Lord is also driving something home here, which is don't divulge this stuff outside the temple. Yeah. Do not talk about outside the temple. The reason that is, is because if we divulge it outside the temple, we will ultimately, um, we could, we could almost kind of damn somebody if they're not ready to receive those things. That is correct. And that's not a call that we, in our run-of-the-day lives, <clears throat> when I say we, I, I literally have my finger pointed at me, I am not in a position 
to make a worthiness call on somebody else. And so when I start, or a, a maturity call on somebody else, where I start saying, yeah, he's good to, to, to know these things. That's for somebody who's been called and set apart to that position. And so if we start revealing these things everywhere to other people who aren't prepared to hear them, we've kind of put them in a precarious spot. Yeah, we do. We condemn them if if they're not prepared or ready for that. Um, you probably heard the, the expression that's used in the military all the time. Loose lips sink ships. Yep. Okay? So who are we sinking if we're divulging things that we shouldn't? We're sinking those that, like you say, aren't prepared for it. We're sinking ourselves. Because then all of a sudden... How can you be trusted if you can't keep that, right? you know, sacred enough? And you're thinking, well, sometimes sacred secret, eh, it can be both. Right. It can be both. I mean, we learn what reticence is. Sometimes you just don't say and you don't explain things to certain people. You don't have to. You know, the Lord didn't tell everybody everything. He taught in parables all the time. Right. and. Uh, then his uh, his disciples and such would come to him later and say, what did you mean when you said that? Well, they were prepared to listen to the answer, but the general public wasn't. Right. And so he wouldn't condemn the general public by giving them too much information. No, he was cast, in some ways you could say he was casting a net to see who would come ask that question afterwards. And be like, okay, that dude's awake. He was listening. We can probably break this down a little bit more. Yeah, and and I, I think those penalties are there. Look, I, I'm not so naive as to say these two things. You won't always have those penalties enacted out on you by God. No, Sometimes you will. Right? In the case of Judas, he did. Right? And we, I, I've heard stories of other people who, who maybe perished by some very suspicious looking, you know, wounds from a car accident or something like that, where you're like, ooh, was that God enacting that? Right? I think the main thrust here is God saying, don't, don't put this out for everybody. There, most people aren't ready to handle this. Understand. There are important things. The other thing I would say is I think that, that the penalty served as an added exclamation point on God's not going to be mocked. Yeah. Understand, you are entering very significant covenants. And how you live those covenants will determine your afterlife. And you better take them serious. And, and sometimes I feel like when we start talking about the penalties, it's just that. It's an exclamation point. Understand, you're on the hook now. You've got something to answer for. I also want, I, I think you did a great job talking about secret and sacred. Sometimes people like to make that dichotomy. You know, oh, no, no, it's not secret. It's sacred. BS, right? It's both. It, it's both, right? Here's what I'll say. You'll never hear somebody, I shouldn't say that, most of the time, you'll never hear a, 
anybody in authority in Mormonism anywhere, whether, you know, in the LDS church even, or um, the branch, or even independents say, no, 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 you can't really have that. That's that's not for you. What they'll say is, you want to know? Put in the work. Put in the work. Yes, it's secret right now, but with a little bit of time and effort and preparation, you can totally know what's in there, right? And so it might be secret, but secret with an invitation, right? We're, we're not trying to be exclusion, exclusive. We're just trying to make sure you're prepared to take those covenants on. And uh, so yeah, I'm kind of a fan of secrecy when it comes to that sort of stuff. It's for their benefit. Absolutely. So here's another one that I think gets misunderstood a lot, and that's the oath of vengeance. What what can you tell us exactly about what the oath of vengeance is? Well, the oath of vengeance is something that was taken out, and I believe it was what was it, the Reed Smoot hearings. Mm-hmm. That was one of the places that it was brought up. Um, see if I can even see where that year was. Had it somewhere in here. I believe the Reed Smith trials were in the 20s, but I could be mistaken. Oh, let's see. Yeah, the Oath of... 1908, the Oath of Vengeance was taken out of the endowment to satisfy the U.S. government in order for Reed Smoot to take his seat in the Senate. Are we noticing a pattern yet? Right? It was taken out for the government. Uh, There again, the government. And not God said to take it out, but the government wanted us to take it out. What for? So that we could sit there and live with the rest of the society that's in the United States or the world or whatever. We we have to capitulate to what they want, not what God wants. And that's kind of a a sad state of affairs. But yeah, it's uh, why would they take that out? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong for asking for the Lord's will concerning something. I'm not taking vengeance upon someone. I'm asking the Lord to do what he does, as in it's his call. When we take the oath of vengeance, basically what we're praying for is that people understand that we want God to hear us and understand that what we're asking for is for his call concerning things. Um, We don't believe in abortion. And how many millions of God's children are killed by abortion? And who's doing that? Doctors, primarily. Right. So, I really don't want them killing other people. I mean, this... We've got a messed up society if, if all we're doing is killing our our unborn children, and we're not allowing them to have have that opportunity. 
So we're asking the Lord's vengeance, not ours, his vengeance, to be on all those who have shed innocent blood. And the way I've learned it and other things is, and this is something, and this is one that's taught to us that we're supposed to teach to our children and our children's children to the third and fourth generations. And that's in the scriptures. Um, and it talks about that. My wife found some examples of that before, and I don't know if you uh, got anything from her concerning that. Well, it looks like she sent it to you, too. DNC 98. Go ahead. I'll let you read that. Okay. <clears throat> just open this up here. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's, it's on me, dude. So, okay. So, DNC uh, section 98, verses 23 through 48. I'm just going to read that here real quick. Now, I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will spite you, uh, smite you or your families once, and ye bear it patiently and revile not against them, neither seek vengeance, ye shall be rewarded. But if ye bear it not patiently, it shall be accounted unto you as being meted out as a just measure unto you. And again, if your enemy shall smite you the second time, and you revile not against it, uh, not against your enemy, and bear it patiently, your reward shall be a hundredfold. And again, if he shall smite you a third time, and ye bear it patiently, your reward shall be doubled unto your four, unto you fourfold. And these three testimonies shall stand against your enemy, if he repent not, and shall not be blotted out. And now, verily I say unto you, that if the enemy shall escape, uh, excuse me, um, and now verily I say unto you, if that enemy shall escape my vengeance, that he shall, that he be not brought into the judgment before me, then ye shall see to it that ye warn him in my name that he come no more upon you, neither upon your family, even your children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. There it is again, that third and fourth generation. And then, if he shall come upon you, or your children, or your children's children, unto the third and fourth generations, I have delivered thine enemy into thine hands. And then, if thou wilt spare him, thou shalt be rewarded for thy righteousness, and also thy children for thy children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. Nevertheless, thine enemy is in thine hands, and if thou rewardest him accordingly to his works, thou art justified. If he has sought thy life, and thy life is endangered by him, thine enemy is in thy, thine hands, and thou art justified. Behold, this is the law I gave unto my servant Nephi, and thy, uh, and thy fathers Joseph and Jacob, and Isaac and Abraham, and all mine ancient prophets. And again, it is the law that I gave unto my ancients, that they should not go out uh, unto battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I the Lord commanded them. And if any nation, tongue, or people shall proclaim war against them, they shall be. They should first lift a standard of peace unto that people, nation, or tongue. And if that people did not accept the offering of peace, neither the second nor the third time, they should bring these testimonies before the Lord. 
then I, the Lord, would give unto them a commandment and justify them in going out to battle against that nation, tongue, or people. And I, the Lord, would fight their battles and their children's battles and their children's children's until they had avenged themselves on all their enemies to the third and fourth generation. Behold, this is an example unto all people, saith the Lord your God, for justification before me. And again, verily I say unto you, if after thine enemy has come upon thee the first time he repent and give unto thee, praying thou sh- thy forgiveness, thou shalt forgive him, and thou shalt hold it no more as a testimony against thine enemy. For so on unto the second and third time, and as oft as thy enemy uh, repeateth in trespass, wherewith he has trespassed against thee, thou shalt forgive him until the seven, seventy times seven. seven. And if he trespasses against and repent not for the first time, nevertheless thou shalt forgive him. If he trespass against thee a second time and repent not, nevertheless thou shalt forgive him. And if he trespass against thee a third time and repent not, thou shalt forgive him. But if he trespasses trespass against thee the fourth time, thou shalt not forgive him, but thou shalt bring these testimonies before the Lord, and they shall be blotted out until he repent. Uh, excuse me, not be blotted out until he repent and reward thee fourfold in all things wherewith he has trespassed against thee. And if ye do this, thou shalt for, if he shall do this, thou shalt forgive him with all thy heart. And if he do not this, I the Lord will avenge thee of thine enemy an hundredfold upon his children and upon his children's children of all them that hate me unto the third and fourth generation. But if the children shall repent, or the children's children, and turn to the Lord their God, and with all their hearts, and with all their might, mind, and strength, and restore fourfold for all they trespass wherewith they have trespassed, or wherewith their fathers have trespassed, or their fathers' fathers, then thine indignation shall be turned away. And vengeance shall no more come upon them, saith the Lord thy God, and their trespasses never be brought any more as a testimony before the Lord against them. Amen. So there's a couple of things that really stick out there. One is is that the Lord is telling you, this stuff is going to carry down. It's not going to just be you, right? Because most likely, if if you're trying to hurt people, you're most likely passing that on to your kids. Well, you do definitely through your DNA. Mm-hmm. Most people don't realize that. Yep. You know, the DNA that we get is coming from our mothers, our fathers, our grandmothers, our grandfathers, all the way up the line. And those things are imprinted upon us, whether we realize it or not. And like it says, if we sit there and break that cycle, then good on us. If they don't break the cycle, it's going to go for generation to generation. You know, this idea of some sort of memory being passed through genetics and DNA, that's got to be a real thing, right? Because you can take a toddler and show them a snake, and most of the time they recoil. Why is that? Same with spiders. Why is that? Well, that's because something's been passed down, right? Which is, don't touch that thing. 
and there was some trauma that was, you know, happened who knows how long ago that has somehow been transmitted down through the ages. Right. And so this idea that that, that gets passed down is absolutely correct. The other thing that that is pointed out to me here is that um, the Lord sets the standard pretty clearly. He says, you know, there's certain times you're justified, but you get the feel in these scriptures that that justification is secondary to this idea of repent of uh, of of offering forgiveness, right? It is secondary to this idea of forgiving and turning the other cheek. The other thing that's very abundant here is that the Lord makes clear, I can do the whole vengeance part of this and make it right. And I like what you said earlier about we're not trying to be the avenging hand of God, right? I think that's where maybe things can get a little convoluted when we start saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to be God's avenging person or whatever. Then you're on some real shaky ground. I don't see anything wrong in the oath of vengeance asking for the blood of the innocent to be avenged. I don't either. I mean, if you're thinking about it, the prophets, the saints, the innocent unborn, that's who I'm concerned about because what have we lost? Well, the innocent unborn, those children never have a chance at that point. The saints, well, saints is implying the idea that they are good and righteous people. And how bad is that if we constantly allow them to be suffering? And then the third one, of course, is like the prophets and stuff. I think this all started, well, this did. This all started at the time of when Joseph Smith and all, or not all of Calvary, but Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram were murdered and such. And Brigham Young started bringing that out. That's when the Oath of Vengeance started coming out. And he wanted that. And if you think about it, who were the people that constantly worked against Joseph Smith? It was it was people that didn't like the gospel, that didn't like righteousness, that didn't like what was going on or happening. And it was even people within the church itself. Those were the men. And that's a form of betrayal completely. And if you're willing to sit there and betray God, what good are you? Right. What good are you, really? And uh, those were simple things then, and I can understand why they were asking Reed Smoot at the time, because they were afraid that the Mormon Church was going to rise up and and go against the United States government. Well, heaven forbid. However, you did have other states and places and Governor Boggs and stuff that went against the Latter-day Saints. We talk about reparations. Maybe all of us in this day, it was my great-great-great-great-grandfather that suffered, so I need to have reparations for me in this life, right? <laughs> you know, I I need a little equity. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Here's the thing: the Lord knows 
the best time, the best place, and the best means to exact vengeance and justice. Absolutely. As men, we're flawed. We don't get to see the full picture like the world does. So anybody who's out there saying, you know, I can be the Lord's instrument in this. No. No. Doesn't the scripture say vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? Yes. Well, that's just it. I'm not going to go take out vengeance on somebody. Sometimes there's people I I think I would like to, but nothing drastic. Right. Right. And. I think the other thing that's that's important to to realize in this and, and talk about a little bit is this isn't talking this isn't saying that, that if someone's in your house at three thirty in the morning you shouldn't defend yourself either, right? That you should just leave it in the Lord's hands. Oh no. Oh. The, the the Lord's made it clear here, I think, in D and C ninety eight. No, no, no. You're justified. You should probably do something, right? And so <clears throat> I, I think we just have to apply common sense to this. One is, if you think you're special enough to be the Lord's avenging angel, no, you're not. No, you're not. If you're thinking that, you probably need to go back and check yourself a little bit with the Lord. Second, this idea of praying for God's justice, yes, yes, we should all be praying for the Lord's justice to come if we're on his side. And then third, you are perfectly justified in protecting yourself, right? I think I think those are some things that I think we can take away from that. Um, did I miss anything on that, Dan? No, I don't think so. And I think it, we talked about as much as we could possibly could talk possibly about. Possibly talk about, yep. Okay. <clears throat> and then finally, and and I saved this one for the last because to me. This next part is probably the reason so many changes were made to the temple. And that is the lecture at the veil. Now, again, without getting into the verbiage, without revealing anything that we shouldn't be revealing, what is the lecture at the veil? The lecture at the veil is kind of to... Help us remember all the things we learned up to that point, uh, as far as the, the washings, the anointings, parts of the endowment, and how the mechanics of that worked. But um, it also taught us who our Heavenly Father is and who our Heavenly Mother is. And it taught us that our Heavenly Father had more than one life and that they populated this earth and that when he, and if you can find this and stuff in in different places, but that he was a celestial being, which meant he already lived on an earth and was resurrected and he was righteous and he came down here and it taught us what he did. He brought us, our spirits here. Sounds an awful lot like the Adam God doctrine, don't you think? Oh gosh, I think it does. Holy cow! <laughs> Something really simple and easy to understand when you understand it correctly. And no, it wasn't any great big mystery because if the, and yes, it is a mystery to know God. It's actually a bigger mystery when you don't know Him because then. 
you're struggling. You don't know who your father in heaven is. You don't know who you're praying to. You don't understand what he's already been through. When you understand that your heavenly father or Michael or Adam was a Christ, he knows what his son, Jesus Christ, and that is part of it. And you understand that in that lecture. And those are important pieces of the puzzle to put together. And there again, you need to be sitting there listening to it. And the more you listen to it, the more you understand and the more you get a concept and, and, and realize, wow, this is deeper and, and you get so much more understanding out of it. There's one of the ways in which we can learn more each time we go. Pay attention to it, listen to it. And I mean, I've, I've learned great mysteries from that lecture, which I didn't have in the LDS church. You know, when the first time I went through the temple it wasn't until I became a member of the branch and then listening to the lecture at the veil and actually giving the lecture at the veil myself when, when I function as the temple president, which helps me to understand. If anything, it's kind of like when you're teaching a subject or teaching a class. Who gets the most out of it? The teacher every time, because you got to feel like you know your stuff. You, you you do. You have to. And then to realize that when I was discovering certain mysteries and, and things from all of that, and I'm going, wow, this is, this is fascinating. And to be able to take it to my file leader and ask him and stuff, am I understanding this right? Is this, is this what this really means? And, and to get answers to your questions. Those are the big things in life. Getting answers to our questions. How many of us have questions that just go unanswered at times? Absolutely. I've... Because it can still be found. Um, I, I, and I won't say where. But you can... As I read through early on in my journeys into fundamentalism as I read through um, the the lecture at the veil it became abundantly clear that the whole endowment was centered around two things the Adam God doctrine and getting answers how to approach the Lord and know you will receive an answer the Adam God doctrine is so interwoven into the original endowment that you can't separate it. And there were times as I was in the LDS church, and I was a weekly temple attendee. I went once a week for 15 years. Right? Um, Except for when I lived in Boise for a little while, they do the shutdown for two weeks on the temple, and I couldn't go. And It wasn't like Utah, where there was another one just down the road. Right. Other than that, once a week for 15 years. And no matter how hard I tried, it felt like it was kind of disjointed or it didn't flow quite right. And it wasn't until I discovered the Adam-God doctrine and then the Mother Church's adamant adamant that it got rid of the Adam-God doctrine that it started to make sense. 
because there's still things in the LDS endowment, or at least there was until this last group of changes, because I don't go now, so I don't know what's what's missing. But there's once you become familiar with the Adam God doctrine, it's all over the place in little snippets here and here. And when you understand the Adam God doctrine, you, you realize, oh, oh, they had to take this part out so that they could get rid of the Adam God doctrine. And I go back to that Catholic theologian who said, every heresy begins with a misconception of who God is. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> the, they'll continue to make changes to the endowment, I think, until they've gotten rid of all the vestiges of Adam God. And this lecture at the Vale was a huge part of that teaching the Adam God doctrine in the temple. In the one of the most sacred spots you could be in, they just got rid of it. They they tried to get rid of it. But in so doing, they continued to just make the endowment feel less and less cohesive. And I think I think that that, that might be the the granddaddy of them all as far as changes to the t- temple endowment because now you got to change everything it's like saying you're trying to restore a 1969 mustang and in your restoring it it turns into a 1973 pinto <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. yeah it's not the same car. no it's not there's no restoration there hey but they're both fords they're both fords i mean you got that going for you right so awesome Dan, is there anything we didn't we didn't cover that you wanted to get a cover? Not that I can think of. Maybe if I think about it later, I'll. Yeah, let me know. I can add stuff here and there. Yeah. But, dude, this was awesome. Let's do it again. Let's do that. Thank you, David. Let's do it again. Bye, everybody. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.